In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A bigger house, a smaller house, any house other than the one we're in. Being asked to lead, being, finally being able to roll off. 16, 21, 25, 30, 40, 50, 10 pounds less, 10 pounds more. More cowbell. One more year, one more hour, just one more minute. A new car, readers, wrinkles, watching him not be able to remember anything anymore. Only 20 fewer emails, an hour to myself, just an hour more of sleep, getting out of debt, a little more tan, not spending so much time in the sun when I was in my 20s, being more organized, being more spontaneous, less gray, no gray, having any hair of any color, (laughs) when I can just make it to vacation, when I can finally have a job again, a new skirt or shoes, a new putter, a new phone, a new boyfriend, any boyfriend, any spouse, a new spouse, just two more. 100 likes, 500 retweets, 1,000 friends, 10,000 steps, $100,000. Compliant children, children that are not shy, children that would calm down, different children, a child at all. Partner, retirement, promotion, raise. Batting third, 10 wins, going last, 1,600, 36, 130, an A, an F, finding the right job, getting into the right school, just getting to the end of the day and getting into bed. What are all these? Of course, they're answers. All of them are answers to questions. Questions that we ask, because if those answers happen, we think our lives, our lives would be different. If the question would find its fulfillment, I would be okay, or at least things would be better. So look. Look at what just happened. 10,000 steps or a pair of new shoes suddenly has become a theological answer. How is a pair of shoes a theological answer? Because we can't help set it up as such. We set up the answers in such a way that we think we will be okay or at least be a little bit better if that just happened. It's like that movie, an otherwise forgettable movie with Nicolas Cage, Family Man, I think it was called. I don't remember the situation, but he shows up where it's not his life, but it's his life. And he's finding himself now as an ordinary man rather than a high-powered executive. But he goes into a shop and he tries on an expensive suit. And he says, wearing this suit actually makes me feel like a better person. He felt okay. And he felt like himself, if only for a moment. What we just heard in Galatians talks about justification. Justification is the Bible's big word that contains so much more than this. But at least to an extent, justification says, I'm okay. Things are okay. What do these answers tell us? All these answers about new shoes, a new phone, 10,000 steps, a time that I could go back to when maybe he could remember. It tells us that we're all self-justifiers with the strong stripe of being constant evaluators. 
we're constantly telling ourselves and negotiating with somebody. But isn't it strange? We don't know who we're negotiating with. We're negotiating with somebody a way to peace, a way to being okay, a way to having life be a little bit better. And that usually involves, it always involves a comparison and evaluation. These many negotiations are so common, these little statements that we tell ourselves, these comparisons where we line up our accusers, we don't even notice. And it's all because we just want a little happiness, just a little peace. Is that so wrong? Wanting a little peace? Is it okay to want a little peace, to want to feel better about the way things are, like Nicolas Cage's character? There's nothing wrong with that. But our fever is much worse than we imagine. And so our prescription for that fever is often, is always, the wrong prescription. We create these scenarios and these pictures in our minds of the way things ought to be, or at least the way we think they should. If only I had a little bit more or a little bit less. If only I, if only he, if only she, if only they. I don't have enough. I have too much. I'm not enough. Maybe I'm too much. Will they pick me? Will there be enough? Will I make it? Will it run out? And in some of the saddest words, if only I'd known. Thinking about all these questions and all these answers, put those into our desire and hear this word again from Paul and how all these are impregnated in that word justification and what the word is telling us. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So shifting, what are we? We are incurable rebuilders. As verse 18 says, If I rebuild what was torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, friends, can this be true? We who have heard the gospel, we who know the finished work of God in Christ, do we really rebuild the very structure that was demolished in us by God to bring us to Him, to be in peace with Him, and so prove ourselves to be transgressors? Of course we do. Day in, day out, week in, week out, Lord have mercy. Here's your name badge. It says transgressor, rebuilder, sinner, self-justifier. That's who we are. What does this most often look like, this rebuilding, this self-justification project that we have? We rebuild what God tore down by trying to take control. A couple of nights ago, we went to a documentary called The Minimalist. Has anybody heard of this? Um, minimalism is not what I thought it was, um, some sort of art 
technique where we're going to go look at a sort of a film on art. It's about people who want to take back control from the maddening consumerism that we're all a part of. How do they do that? They do that by going minimal. If you've heard about tiny houses, they're basically U-Haul trailers that have been reconfigured like 200 square feet and somebody lives in it. Kitchen, bathroom, living room, bedroom, the whole thing. Project 333. You'd have 33 items total and you will live with those for three months. That's your shoes, your outerwear, your underwear, your clothes, your accessories, necklaces, jewelry, 33 items, no more. Or maybe even by simply giving intentional thought to everything, and they mean everything you own and getting rid of anything, anything that does not give you value or joy. Is that wrong? It's not wrong. All of us could get off the consumer's train for a while. But remember the word from Paul. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself a transgressor. What does he mean? If I try to wrest control of my life and putting meaning and value back into it, if I try to take control to try a little peace, to try to get life back to the way it should be, even if it's a good thing, like trying to get control of my spending habits, I prove myself a transgressor and a sinner. How? Because anything that separates me from the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord is an agent of sin and the law, and those become the death of me. Sin is ever-present in me and wants to bludgeon me with the law. I wonder if you can relate to this monologue that you might have in your head. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Well, how much more? Just a little bit. Well, how much more? Just a little bit. Is that enough? Yes, you did it. Congratulations. You finished. You made it all the way to the end. You brought control back. You win. Now, what is that? I don't know. Whatever your little project is. Whatever it's it's losing 10 pounds, stopping your fingernails, not drinking anymore. What does that look like? That looks like the person you don't want to sit next to on the airplane. Because all they can talk about is what you need to do because it worked for them. They wrought back control. They figured it out. They've got the plan, and they want to make sure that you know. All they won't know is what you need to do. Is this winning? I don't think so. The answer to all those questions that we started with, um, some silly, some not so silly. If it's not doubling down to take on control, what is it then? What is it indeed? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To be sure, this is the work of God and not our own. This is not our surrender, for we do not crucify ourselves easily. Surrender. It's been the last time. I think surrender is an interesting word. I want to make surrender a word that works biblically. I'm not so sure. It feels like it should fit in the Bible. It feels like the way that we could describe the way I relate to God. But I think there are some layers to the word that need to be unpacked first. For I have the suspicion that most of us want to take control even of our surrender. I wonder how many of you are like me. I suspect many. You like these movies, these movie movie heroes, whether it's James Bond or Jason Bourne, or for some reason the last few days, the one I've had in my mind is um, Bruce Willis in Die Hard. John McClane? Somebody like that. Uh, What do we relish? What do I relish? 
you know, Hans Kruger is right there and Bruce Willis puts his hands up and he's like, oh, you got me, Hans, you got me. But you see the camera's back there and we all know something that Hans Kruger doesn't know. The bad guy doesn't know. He's got a gun taped to his back. He's not really surrendering. He's still in control of the situation. He's always got a plan. There's a backup. There's something else that's going on. Our heroes, the fantasies that we have in our own minds, are always able to maintain control of the situation. Or at the very least, they at least figure it out. They even know how to run away on a bunch of shards of glass with bare feet and somehow they can do it. So what is all this? In the background, as we're thinking about surrendering to God and this idea of being okay, is that so wrong? And then this hard word, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the background, as we think about surrendering of our life coming to an end, whatever that means, is it either that I'm finally tired of all the accusations and the rat race and I'm finally just, I'll take some peace, whatever I need to do, I'll put my hands behind my head, I'll get into the trunk, I surrender, I yield for now. I think that's typically what we think of. And when the opportunity comes back around, I'll be the rebuilder and I'll pull it back together, and I'll take control of my life again, where God once again is the co-pilot, where He's convenient for me when I run back there and run to the bathroom real fast, and He just takes the wheel for a few minutes, and then I can come back. Or, I think sometimes we have this idea about surrender. That sometime, when I think I finally and completely and fully, those adverbs are killers, by the way, when I finally have to let go and let God... I'm not so sure we can do that. Since I started thinking about this on Wednesday, I watched for this. And on two days, two days, Thursdays and Friday, Thursday and Friday, and really all I wanted to do was get through my emails that I'd been behind on from being gone last week. And so it wasn't even a day where I was spending a lot of time with people. And three times on three different occasions in two days, I heard a version of this. I guess I just need to figure out how to let it go. I need to figure out how to get rid of this picture in my head and get on board with what God is trying to do. I need to let go of my old life. I need to let go of this idol and let God do what He wants to do with me. Do you hear that? I hear that as so sad as I sat with these people and they were struggling. The image that they were just holding on at the end of their rope and it was as if they were trying to think, so I'm supposed to let go of this rope, right? That's the, that's the Bible's word, right? That's what I'm supposed to do, right? And sitting with him in that moment, I was like, you can't let go of the rope. We're just not wired that way. People don't crucify themselves. Nobody crawls up on a cross and drives nails through their hands and their feet and pins them to a cross. It doesn't work. I don't think the idea of surrender is the word. So if we're not invited to surrender, what is it? Well, it's pretty simple. We're dead. <laughs> the Bible has a stark message. We are dead. We've encountered the living law, the living word of the living God, and it's done its work on us. And we're dead. It's brought me fully and completely to the end of myself. I don't have to let go of the rope. The rope's been gone a long, long time ago. I'm not even hanging on. As Paul says in 2.19, through the law, 
I have died to the law. It's a descriptor. You're dead. And friends, this is good news. This is really good news. William Tyndale, old English reformer who brought so much of the Bible into English for us, had this to say. Our salvation is clean taken out of our hands and put into the hands of God only, which thing is most necessary of all. For we are so weak and so uncertain that if it stood in us, there would be a truth of a truth no man be saved. In modern language, if it were up to us to let go of the rope, we would never let go. But friends, it is good news. Salvation is taken clean out of our hands. There's no rope. You are already dead. And now we have this word. This word which speaks to us. It says, to mix a metaphor, wake up, dead man. (laughs) Wake up and see that you are dead. Wake up and hear the living God. It says if we can tell the law, law, you are right. I'm all of that and so much more, worse than I even know. But law, you have a problem with jurisdiction. For you see, you have me confused with somebody else. You thought I was somebody who was alive. But law, you see, your word has already done its work. And I am dead. And now the life which you see, the only life which is lived, is the life which is lived through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Law, you are good, right, and holy, but you have me confused with somebody else. For I am dead to myself and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is clean taken out of our hands. This is good news. This word that Paul has for us here. That when God sees you, He does not see you as a half and half. He does not see you as a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, a work in progress. Uh, He doesn't look down and say, there's Gil Cracky. He's on his way, not quite finished, but he's going to figure it out. One day he's going to let go of the rope and let me take charge. He looks down, not at a divided self, at a woman with a secret, at a woman of of the city, or a man with a checkered past. He looks down and simply says... There you are, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. For you see, when he sees us, he sees his Son. For the life which we live, we live only in Christ Jesus. Hear that word, my friends, which stops all other words. Amen.